Well, good morning. Hey, we're in week number three of our Advent series. And this year's Advent series I've appreciated because it's, it's taking us to a place of looking at some different people in the Christmas story that we wouldn't normally look at. And so for a cup of Christmas cheer this morning, we're going to look at the villain of Christmas. You know, by now you've probably um, vegged out on all kinds of Christmas movies. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've saved a few of my favorites uh, until I get a little closer. I watch them every year, but I still like them. But have you ever noticed most of these movies have some villains in them? Here's what I mean. Dr. Seuss's, right? The Grinch does what? Steals presents, right? You got Home Alone, all 13 of them. You've, uh, and they all have the uh, two bandits, the two thieves, right? Harry and Marv. And they're trying to steal presents and ruin everybody's Christmas. You've got a wonderful life and you've got Mr. Potter, who's uh, just the town villain, uh, a ruthless guy who tries to ruin everybody's life. And then you've got Christmas Vacation. <laughs> and I haven't watched it yet, but it's my save list. In Christmas Vacation, you've got Clark who's eagerly awaiting his uh, Christmas bonus, right? Because he's going to buy a pool. And so uh, the storyline is he's waiting, he's waiting, and he's waiting. And Christmas Eve, there's a knock on the door. He gets an envelope. He thinks this is Christmas bonus. And it's a, uh, a gift to the jelly club, right? <laughs> and the most unlikely hero of the story is Cousin Eddie. <laughs> Isn't it? Right? The blue leisure suit goes out, gets in the, uh, the motorhome, drives over to Clark's boss, kidnaps him, brings him back. He saves the day. Cousin Eddie against the Christmas villain. They all have villains, these movies. And you know, if the villain wasn't a, a part of the story, you would never get the contrast of good and evil, would you? you? You wouldn't understand the darkness, and sometimes it's funny, but you wouldn't understand the darkness if it's not exposed by the light. So this morning, as we dig into uh, week three, we're going to look at the Christmas villain a very heinous king that really exposes the darkness of sin because the baby Jesus is a huge threat to him. Listen to what John chapter 1 says about Jesus. It says that Jesus was the light. He shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light exposes and overcomes darkness always. But without the darkness, we wouldn't understand our need of the light. Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 says, He, meaning Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. This morning we've sang about the gospel, we've read Bible verses about the gospel starting in 
verse 3 of Genesis. We even spoke about it during child dedications, and we're going to speak about it again this morning from this text. The villain of the Christmas story this morning plays a piece of this divine drama of the Christmas story. You know, a few minutes ago, the last song we sang was Joy to the World. Well, a verse we didn't sing goes like this. It's a part of Joy to the World. It says, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Our Christmas songs, though so nostalgic for most of us, as we sing about the joy, most often will point us to some degree of our need for the light because of the darkness. And so my task this morning is going to be to remind us again of this gospel thread that begins in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve and in the garden and the battle then it ensues between Satan and God and then the promise of Jesus coming one day to crush sin and death and Satan. And this is a piece of that story. This is a piece that we're going to look at this morning. This morning there's a clash of two kings and two kingdoms as we look at King Herod and King Jesus. There's a contrast, one a just king being Jesus and the other a very jealous king, that being Herod. Jesus being a king of peace and Herod being a king of power. Jesus, the king over a kingdom that has security. And Herod, a king over an earthly kingdom that's full of scandal. Let's pray and then look at our scripture passage this morning together. Father, help us as we open your word to recognize this common theme and thread that begins at the beginning of your word in Genesis that now points to the coming of Christ, the glorious, majestic, all-knowing, all-powerful king that comes as a baby but yet rules the world in truth and grace. Expose that to us this morning as we look at your word and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have one, uh, we have Bibles on the back. I know Tom would be happy to give you one. Simply slip up your hand and he'd be happy to get you a Bible this morning if you're looking on your phone or tablet. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 2 of the ESV version of Scripture. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. Let's read together now. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, or Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he 
who has been born king of the Jews. For we, uh, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, O you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word, that I may too may come and worship him. And listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for this child and to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The villain of Christmas. Let's look at these passages a little closer, starting in verse 1. So it's about two years, actually, after Jesus was born. So all of your uh, nativity scenes that have the wise men at the cradle are wrong. Sorry to spoil that for you. But Jesus is now about two years old. And the villain of Christmas shows up. Here's the scene. Jesus had been born in Bethlehem, this very small, insignificant town of that day. It wasn't very big, 
maybe a couple of hundred people. And Herod, this very mighty king of the time, the one who is very powerful, enters the story as this very worried, very concerned king. Now here's a little insight into Herod's life, this, this villain. Because reading these verses, yeah, you know he's responsible to kill a bunch of children. But in order to grasp how bad this guy is, listen to some of the things we know about Herod. Across Israel, he had built about eight palaces or fortresses throughout Israel. So he's known as a builder, but most importantly, he was known as a butcher. Herod had killed his wife, he had killed his mother-in-law, he killed three of his children, and he had actually killed hundreds of people. Anyone who that was a threat to Herod was sure to die. And so Bethlehem sits this small little town of a couple hundred people right at the base of one of Herod's main fortresses. Kim and I had, I had the opportunity to visit this a few years ago. And literally, if you're standing on top of this palace fortress, which is rubble now, and you looked at an angle like this, you see the town of Bethlehem. This is where the king of kings and the Lord of lords lives now. And so Herod is this evil, paranoid, power-hungry, scandalous person. And so when the wise men come to him in verse 2 and ask, where's this one who has been born who is king of the Jews? You can only imagine the threat that he feels. Again, anyone who gets in his way, anyone who decides they will come against this king and remove him from any kind of power is surely to die. And they proclaim him king of Jews. Verse 3. So when he hears this, the text says he was troubled. Now, in, in our modern day English, that doesn't have the significant impact of the word in the actual language. This word means he was so angry he physically trembled and shook. He wasn't a little worried. So when the wise men come and they speak to him, he's very disturbed. He's shaking violently because there's a threat to his throne. And now he becomes consumed with dealing with this threat. And there's an interesting piece that I noticed as I read this. Look at verse 3 again. It's not only Herod who is troubled. It says all of Jerusalem is troubled. So it's just not him. You've got the whole town. This very famous town in biblical history and at that time upset with the birth of Christ. And now we see not only the town and Herod, but we have the religious leaders enter the scene of this divine drama. Herod brings them into the picture. 
because he wants to inquire about where this king is supposed to be born. You know, it's interesting that you've got the most powerful, mighty king that was feared by all people of the time, worried about a baby, the most helpless person at the time. And yet, Herod, the villain, is so consumed, so upset, and the people of the town that he goes to unbelievable lengths to carry out this evil plan. Well, how is that? Well, it's kind of like that for us whenever Jesus enters the scene and demands of us. It confronts us in our kingdom, doesn't it? What we think we're in charge of, what we think we're in control of. And just like any king, King Jesus will demand loyalty. He'll demand people to bow. He'll demand obedience. And that brings a conflict. So verses 4 through 6, Herod now um, is getting a little better picture on where things are, where Jesus, the king that has been born, has taken place. And the thing I notice about these verses is as he calls the religious leaders of the time together, they quote exactly from scripture where Jesus is to be born. But they, as well as all Jerusalem, are part of the uproar. But notice this, they have no interest in searching for what they proclaim. Like, where's Jesus to be born? Uh, it's Bethlehem. We're sure of it, it says in Scripture. So you probably can find him there. But that, is that astounding? It, it makes no difference to them at all. So you've got Herod, who knows? You've got the religious leaders that know. And it's kind of not a big deal to them. Verses 7 and 8, so... Herod now jumps into this deception mode and it's like, hey, fellas, what time did the star appear? He's getting a few more details, maybe to check out this story for himself. And what about this star? What it looked like? We don't know, and that's not the point of this morning's message. All we know is that everybody could see it. People from far away could see it. It pointed to Jesus, Okay. And so Herod, trying to be clever, says, go check it out and let me know what you find because I want to worship Jesus. You see the villain's deception taking place? Here's the most powerful guy around. If he really wanted to worship, why didn't he go himself? Or why didn't he send an army? No, he sends the magi and asks them to come back with a report. Verse 9, there's a second appearing of the star. The star appears again and points to where Jesus is. Bethlehem, six miles outside of Jerusalem. And here's the place where the light that dispels the darkness is shining. 
And think about this after I've described to you the scene of Bethlehem and Herod's palace. It doesn't shine on the most powerful person's location. I mean, it's probably no more than a mile or two. And yet, the light that dispels the darkness, the star, points away from this powerful king's palace. And so Jesus is born literally in the shadow of Herod's fortress, in the backyard of the most powerful and brutal king of the time. Yet as we see even that night, that day, the star outshines the darkness. Verses 10 and 11, they, the uh, Magi show up, they worship and bow down. God tells them not to go back to Herod because there's a plan by Herod to kill Jesus. And so God now speaks in verses 13 through 15 to Joseph, tells him to go about 90 miles south to Egypt because Herod was going to try and kill the baby. And so they leave. And now we begin to see Herod's frustration even increase because God has squelched and squashed his evil plan. Isn't it interesting how often villains think they can outmaneuver God? Isn't it interesting how often we think we can outmaneuver God? There's this sense in which we think we have some kind of power to do what we want and the way we want as if God would never intervene and take care of things the way he wants. You know, throughout this scripture passage, there are at least four times the Old Testament is referred to giving us proof that Jesus is the Christ. And so verses 16 through 18, you see the brutality of sin and Herod on full display. So angry, he sends his own militia to go kill young children. History reports that Herod, as he became old and began to lose his kingdom, his anger and his pride due to his sin only increases and gets worse. The man who thought he could stop Christmas, powerless, unable to do anything to keep his kingdom from being taken only. You know, if you go to that location today, they're nothing but ruins of Herod's palace. I mean, rubble. It's, it's for miles around, you can see this big structure sitting on top of uh, a peak. And you get there and there's nothing but rubble. But the king that we're going to talk about now, his king and his kingdom, Jesus, is still intact today. The kingdom of Christ is still as strong and as intact as it ever was. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is alive and his kingdom can never be taken and can never be shaken. 
So what are some takeaways from the villain of the Christmas story? What are the things that uh, you and I should note about this? And what does it have to say to us at this Christmas time? Well, first of all, it must remind us that Jesus is the promised king and the proclaimed king throughout Scripture. Verse 2, where is the king of the Jews was the very thing that outraged the king at the time. If you jump to Philippians chapter 2, it tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Mark chapter 15, at his death, there's a plaque put over Jesus' body hanging on the cross that says, King of the Jews. In Revelation chapter 17, it says, they will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is King of kings. This story that reveals a baby who came as man is the conquering king of Scripture. Matthew chapter 2 reminds us of this gospel story we continually reminded you of this morning. While we sing our Christmas songs, while we gather and celebrate, you know what, if you keep Jesus the size of a baby, he's a little too insignificant for us, is he not? This baby is the conquering king of Scripture. You have to see the story that Herod is but a pawn in Satan's plan to try and thwart God's action to bring salvation to the world. This battle between good and evil is real. And so when baby Jesus is born, Herod by his sinful nature is totally responsible but is not also a pawn used by Satan to try and stop the most wonderful world, a wonderful news the world has ever heard. So we have to have that as a backdrop this morning. The, the gospel reveals the nature and the goal of sin and death. And that's destruction and lying and pain and corruption and defeat. And we see that in this passage, do we not? The gospel reveals that. That's the darkness, but the good news overcome and dispels the darkness. So we have to remember that King Jesus came to defeat man's true enemy. Jesus, the king who defeated sin and death, is the baby we celebrate at Christmas. Baby Jesus, the mighty king, would grow up to fulfill the plan of God to provide salvation to the world. Second thing that I think we can take away that I want you to consider this morning is this. This passage reveals there are two kingdoms we are all faced with. Two kingdoms. Why was Herod so disturbed and fearful? It's because kings require that you submit, bow, follow, and obey them. Jesus requires that of us today. There's a rebellious heart inside of us that struggles to submit. 
to anyone, especially Jesus. I don't want to have to submit. I want to think that I'm king over my kingdom and I have control over it. When anyone would come in and say, it's not true, you have to bow and you have to submit and you have to follow Christ, something in me gets riled up, doesn't it? Because we think we are king over our own kingdoms. And so we live life thinking we have control and we have some kind of power and we think that, uh, you know, all things can be dealt with by us until death enters the scene for you and me. Until our world starts to crumble when life unravels, when insecurity comes in because the money and the jobs or the relationships you have start to get taken away. You're a powerless king over your kingdom. There's nothing you can do about that. Life begins to unravel. And it's then when you realize you need a real king. A king that never changes. A king over the true kingdom. I want you to think with me for a minute about the kingdom we try to develop for ourselves. It's masked many times, but the kingdoms we try to create are full of insecurity. They lead us to think that uh, we can control things, and so we're fearful of what might not happen or what will happen. And so there's always a turmoil when you think your kingdom is at risk. Well, your kingdom that you can create is full of jealousy because you want to be secure by the things that you possess or the power you think you have. It requires you to be suspicious of everything and everyone. It's also a kingdom that pursues prestige and position that gives you no rest. You have to work to keep or earn a position or prestige or power in your kingdom. And so you tirelessly work to maintain a place of influence and respect. This kingdom that we think we're in charge of is full of self-righteousness. You must do more and more to please God and there's no security because you never know if you've done enough. And it's full of lies. Lies that we believe like, don't worry about tomorrow, everything will be okay. I won't die, I'm a healthy person. I had a nice house, I've got good friends, I've got a good job. It's all good and I can maintain it all. That's the kingdom we think we're in charge of. There's no rest, there's no peace, there's no Christmas songs going to be saying about that kind of a kingdom. But Jesus is a different king and his kingdom is different. The interesting thing about Jesus is he came not in the way he should have come as a king. Kings come with massive palaces with servants and people bowing down and worshiping, and we find Jesus, the king, lowly. 
comes to a small town with no palace. He became poor as a king, giving up the majesty he had with the Father and the Spirit so he could become man. And he becomes like us that live in this kingdom that we think we're in control of. He's a just king who never judges unfairly. He's a king of peace who can humbly into our world to save the world that sins against him. He's full of mercy and full of grace. Jesus, who gives us what we don't deserve, which is death, and does not give us what we do deserve. A king full of love who cares for our well-being. A king who became man and entered our world to first experience death and sin and pain and suffering that he had never experienced before. He's a king who is approachable, desiring to have a relationship with us. A forgiving king who loves to say you're forgiven when you confess. He's a king whose kingdom will never end. That's the kingdom that's offered to us. One kingdom held captive to the deception of sin, fueling your sinful desires with empty promises. The other true kingdom, which gives life, that gives hope, that's full of love, grace, and mercy. Which kingdom are you pursuing this morning? And then finally, I want us to consider four people in this story and the way they approach this Christmas event and what it might say to us. This, this story is a great cause for us to consider how you approach Christmas this year. Here are the four people I want us to consider first. There's the Magi. Their drive and purpose was to find the King of Kings and to bow and to worship and to follow and to love and to adore. Jesus was the reason they worshiped. They, looking, or they, look, they came looking to adore and to worship. There was expectation, there was excitement, there was joy, and there was awe because of Christ. How are you approaching Christmas? That way? The second set of characters is the city of Jerusalem, six miles away. And it just shocks me that this city... The whole city that could have seen the star that points to what's taking place, no one, absolutely no one says, I got to go check this out for myself. The most famous and important town in Jewish belief is Jerusalem, and it's indifferent to the birth of their Messiah King. They're busy going about their own business and their own world, so wrapped up in what they thought was important to them. 
And friends, if we're not careful, that can easily happen to us, can we not? Third are the religious leaders of the time. They knew the religious significance of the event they prophesied about and read scripture about. Intellectually, they could give every right answer, but it had no impact on their life whatsoever. I mean, they they would have been the ones who could have stood up here and just simply read the scripture, but it's no big deal. It has no impact on them, and it should point to the fact that if we're not careful, we can come each week, sing the songs, read the passages, go home like it's no big deal. Are you comfortable in simply knowing about the Christmas story? Or does your heart desperately desire to worship and live for and serve? the Christ of the Christmas story. And then finally, there's Herod, this last piece. Jesus, we've said, was a threat to him. And rather bowing, he bullies. Rather than seeking, he strategizes. His heart was hard and there was no place to acknowledge and surrender to Jesus. Is Jesus someone who threatens you? Maybe even this morning as we read this story, you were confronted with this kingdom you think you're in charge of. Maybe this morning you've been confronted with the king who has rights to your life and your fake kingdom. Are you battling Jesus or are you bowing to Jesus? This Christmas, that's something I'd ask you to ponder. Are you battling Jesus or are you bowing to Jesus? So the Christmas villain this morning reveals the good news. Because, my friends, if Christ had not been born, you and I would be subject to to multiple kingdoms who come in waves like King Herod. And we would know nothing but brutality. We would have no hope. We would simply be stuck in a world with no light. But that's not the gospel. Christ came. We know it. Our scriptures point to it. Christ came. He lived. He grew up from being a baby and lived on this earth for the express purpose to die as the king who would give his life that anyone who would believe would have eternal life and be a part of that kingdom. A kingdom full of peace and rest and goodness. Let us not fall for the lie of the kingdom we think we're in charge of, but pursue the Christ of Christmas. Let's pray. Thank you this morning for this truth, for this story. Lord, there's some shocking things as we've read. There's death, but in that midst, there is great hope. 
There's the great promise that Scripture spoke of that we read proving that you are the Christ. We didn't dig into that too deeply. But, oh, Lord, would you, during this Christmas season, impress on our hearts and confront us with the two kingdoms and ask us, which are we pursuing? And then cause us to consider which of the four characters in this passage most relate to us and the way we approach Christmas this year. Will we bow or will we battle Jesus? Pray in Jesus' name, amen.